todo el mundo. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today I have a co-host, Darren Smith, creator of the rock opera film Repo, the Genetic Opera, which was directed by Darren Lynn Bowsman, and he's also one of my favorite collaborators. We've written books together and made films, too. In fact, The Second Age of Aquarius, which is a rock and roll sci-fi comedy about a 60s rock star who's resurrected in present day as an avatar, is based on a short story we wrote and made into a feature film, which is out now, Everywhere You Stream Films. Hello, Darren. Hello there, Stacy. Thanks for having me on. For those who haven't seen it yet, how would you describe The Second Age of Aquarius? No. It's really like a mod science meets Oliver Stone's The Doors. Um, and I would say it's an award-winning comedy since we That's just got right. some awards at the Zed Fest, four of them, as a matter of fact. Um, um, not, and, and, and not the least of which for our great actors, Christina Jacqueline Kauf, who plays the lead in, in, the, in the film, has got an award for Best Actress, as well as Brooke Bellis Lewis, and uh, the, the entire cast, the guy who plays our rock star, Russell Aquarius, Michael Ursu, not only just a fantastic uh, actor, but just a great musician, too, which really helped me out when I was writing the music for, for, this, um, for this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I always tell people, you know, that finding Michael Ursu was just like a... I don't know it's almost a cosmic thing because it's so hard to find someone that can not only act do comedy sing play guitar write music I mean you know he does all those things plus the fact that he has long hair and he does not have tattoos because back then in the 60s when Russell was alive the guys weren't all tatted up so I mean we really kind of found a unicorn there don't you think yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you know, and he's, he's got a little of the 
I don't know, that kind of cocky rock star, you know, lead vocal syndrome type of thing, <laughs> which works for us. I mean, he's a great uh -huh. guy anyway, but I mean, he's got that, he's got a little of that cock of the walk thing now that really works for the, for playing a rock star. Uh, so yeah, he's, he's just fantastic. And you're right, we're going through the, uh, the songs he's supposed to sing in the film, you know, he can play the play him by with on guitar. I didn't need to have play guitar and have him just ghost the finger work. He actually did it, um, and and it really does make a difference because I I know from previous work, such as when I was working on Repo the Genetic Opera, you know, if you, 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 that's another music related rock uh, film, and you know, I did find out. You know, if you have if you have to choose a musician versus an actor, even for a rock opera, you choose an actor. I mean, because they can fake it. They can, you know, it's like, you know, there's just something we all know. We can't put our finger on it as to why somebody is not a good actor, is not a professional actor. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, so it really is. Be, there were a lot of names that were put out in for playing uh, in that movie, Repo the Genetic Opera, but a lot of them were just, they, I won't name who they are, but the great musicians, singers, but they are not actors. And people just, but so you're right back to uh, Second Age of Aquarius. Having Michael Ursu play our character, Russell Aquarius, he really, I mean, literally made it come to life. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, our Russell Aquarius is a member of the 27 Club. I mean, we just had to give him that. Um, why do you think we're so fascinated with rock stars who died young? I think, first of all, the, the main thing is that once you die young, at least they give the impression that they've given everything for their art. And so... You know, it's like, uh, you know, it, we, we can't conceive of, let's say, Jimi Hendrix is doing anything other than the fact that being a brilliant guitarist and writer and singer, he didn't have a chance to develop all these other interests, which we may have done later in life if he lived. But I think that there's a commitment there. I mean, obviously, death is a commitment, and it's death is sometimes a great, uh, it's a great uh, career move. But um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons. And the second one is, we I think we we kind of I don't want to use the word handicap, but I mean, we have a different level of standard for people who died at young. Um, you know, if you look at this example, it would be Jimi Hendrix. You look at list after list, the best rock guitarists that have ever lived. You know, you almost always it's Hendrix at number one, mm -hmm. and and it rightfully so. But, you know, up to the point that you can even like rank, let's say, the top ten guitarists. I think at some point it's just subjective. But but I really think the reason he's number one is because he was not only just brilliant, but he died. We don't know what he would have done after this. I mean, I think he would have done a lot of really interesting, almost avant-garde music, but you never know. He could have been like 
Peter Satira in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> he could have just gone all schlacky like Elton John and, you know, the Lion movie and beyond. I mean, it is kind of like a way to be immortal in the prime of your life because Jimi Hendrix, for example, we never saw him get gray hair. We never saw him get me too'd. We never saw him playing at in Las Vegas lounges. You know, I mean, that that is kind of a kind of an interesting take. But also, the Twenty Seven Club is just so. I guess it's just so alluring because it's one one age that you know so many rock stars have kicked off at. I know, and some some seemingly unwitting of the of the fact that it's coincidental that they're all 27. Um, but yeah, I, I think, it, you know, it's akin to, to like the JFK or, you know, any other leader that was killed in the prime of their life. It's like you said, they're, they, they look good, they, you know, live fast, die young, and they live a good, lead a, leave a good looking course <laughs> right. um, and so you never know like you know what could have been and I think that for most of these 27 club people we're talking about um, we're talking about in a prior age before uh, Twitter before you know blogging at the after each show there was a kind of mystique I think that was around you know back in the pre-90s, let's say, or mm -hmm. maybe pre-21st century, that, you know, there's a lot of stuff you don't know about these people. You don't know about their private life. And I think that did create a great mistake around them that I think is lost now when, when you know, you, you, you play a gig and the first thing you got to do is connect with your fans and tell them about every single thing that was going through your head while you were playing that smoke on the water solo for the All right, and time. Taking a picture uh, of your food backstage. <laughs> you know, yes, like, oh, exactly. God. Yeah, it's sometimes it's too much information, but um I do want to switch gears to back to you. You wrote some really incredible period correct songs for the second age of Aquarius. I mean I think your lyrics you. are funny, but they're not really a parody like say this is final tap. Um what was your process for writing the songs and why is it important that you recorded on actual instruments, um, you know, many of which were actually from Russell's era? Well, first of all, thank you for switching gears to me. It's in your contract. I can't get out of it. Time <laughs> to switch gears now to me. Enough talk about me, though. Let's talk about my hopes and dreams. And... No, uh, well... Okay, you asked a lot of great questions. I'll, I'll, I'll put it down this way. First of all, I'm a huge fan, and I know you are too, of the music of the 60s, early 70s. So mm -hmm. I love that period of music. When we wrote this character of Russell Aquarius, uh, you know how when you write things, they start getting more real in your mind. Even before we got Michael to play the part, they started thinking like, well, what would this what would this guy write about when he was doing music? You know, it's going to be a so in a way, it's kind of an intersection between my interest in the music of that era and the actual music that this particular character would be writing. Um, and so, it, it was important to me to have 
to to be historically accurate, okay? So mm -hmm. in terms of the sound, to make it sound like it really was like going the range from like kind of early, I don't know, Beatles kind of roughness from 1966 with Russell Aquarius's fictitious first hit, Furry Freak, <laughs> to like some of his later work, which is more, it's more like uh, the Beatles' Abbey Road. So it's a little, you know, it kind of mirrors that time period of all those changes. Um, I, 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 being such a big fan of the music, I, I'm, I'm always irked whenever I see any kind of biopic and they just couldn't even get it up to do the music the way somebody would have done it back then. You know, the, whatever the, the, you know, it's simple things like adding synthesizers and stuff to music that never had it. Um, you know, the, it, it, disco beats, the things that were really like James Brown. I mean, the, the, uh, Uptown Funk is a great example of, you know, that song by Mars Bruno, uh, Bruno Mars, rather, which I like the song. But, you know, when they're trying to make it a James Brown thing, they fail because that's not a James Brown beat. They're using a disco beat and thinking like, okay, that's old. It's kind of in the same time period when James Brown was alive. That'll do. You know, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted something that sounded plausibly like it could have been sung then, played then, but also recorded then. And to that end, I had a guy in uh, my studio, guy in Nashville, Zach Kasich. Uh, we worked together to record on original instruments, old 1962 Gibsons and you know, old keyboards, and using old recording techniques, which eventually got down to be mixed on a uh, 1972 four track uh, two track mix down thing that had been used for I think it was for um, uh, Dark Side of the Moon but just it was a bunch of hits uh, you know classic oh, wow. music from that yeah so we used that because the sound it, the sound eventually is going to go back into digital right because that's mm -hmm. just the way yeah. everything is heard today but we took the digital stuff and we ran it through old tube amps and all the things of the era and uh, to come back to something that I think is, is period, period perfect. Let's listen to Russell's first hit from 1966. This is Furry Free. <laughs> Sheep, the sheepskin turns me on. Only 
one of my absolute favorite comedies ever. Um, and it's great. And I thought, well, first of all, I don't want to redo Spinal Tap. You know, they've been, they did it and I yeah. can't write anything better than Big Bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> the bigger the cushion, the sweeter the push. And I mean, you know, when you yeah. get brilliant lines like that, come on, man. It's like <laughs> tadpole in a jar. Yeah, um, exactly. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I was thinking. Uh, but uh, I think that rather than just something that was just a straight-on parody and that, I, you know, I guess maybe parodies are generally supposed to be, I don't know, stupid, right? I mean, it's like I'm parodying. Yeah, you're supposed to the, laugh at them and not with them, where I find, like, <laughs> your lyrics are funny and people will smile, but it's not making fun of that era of music at all. Yeah, that's right. It's not. And so... Um, you know, and, and so doing a parody didn't make any sense to me. Plus, this movie is, is, is very character-based, right? I mean, there's a real character to, obviously, um, uh, the, 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 the Michael Ursu, the Russell Aquarius. And writing a parody just would, I think, would have just, I don't know, destroyed even the comedic character of this person, because it, the music, what he had to sing, should be organic to his character. And, uh, you know, luckily, as we were writing the screenplay, you know, the lyrics came out, and then I just started hearing it, kind of like, this is how, this is what Russell would have sung, mm -hmm. this is how he would have sung it, um, you know, and it's just kind of go from there. Yeah, well, one thing I like that you did, which is really also period correct and cool, is you have a, one of the songs that you have it in mono. Yeah, that was fun. And it's, it's, it's so funny because it's like, it sounds strange to us, you know, uh -huh. I mean, we're, you know, even things that you just don't hear that anymore. Um, at least not not on a not on a stereo computer. You know, a lot of things actually in clubs are done in mono, um, just because where you're placed in a in a huge space 
if it's not in mono, you might not really be hearing properly what all the things are. Mm -hmm. But yeah, doing stuff in mono um, was important. And um, the guy, Zach, who I worked with, the Nashville uh, studio cat, he, um, he does a lot of music, uh, you know, being in Nashville, he does a lot of music that people want to be classic rock, let's say, or, you know, classic country. But uh -huh. he also knows they, people come in saying, I want it to sound old. And he knows to translate that into, it has to sound old, but only within the contours of what we can acceptably listen to today. So, yeah, yeah I mean, nobody wants to, you know, you don't want to hear all the hits and, you know, yeah, all the, the popping stuff. and, yeah, the scratches on the record. Yeah, and then, and then the, the bass sounding like it was just like, like toothpaste because they couldn't record good bass guitar, you know, in my opinion, anyway, in the early 60s. And so, you know, he, he does a fine line between making the music um, sound like it's from old times, but I told him what, you, what we want to do is make it look like this was old music that is now being digitally remastered. And that way, I think it's just more acceptable for a modern audience to hear. In which case, so you mentioned the, one of the songs being recorded both in stereo and mono, just the way that they did it back you know, it did in the advent of the LP era. Um, but even with the stereo one that we did, I didn't want to do it too extreme. It really is kind of, it's, it's kind of like mono, but I want to call it mono plus because it, there's a certain presence there that you subconsciously hear is in this sounds like mono, but it has, I guess, back, yeah, for lack of a better word, it, it's mono with actually more presence to it. Well, you also did something with the stereo effects in one of the songs. I believe it was Scorpio's mantra that um, you, I don't even really know how to describe it because I'm not a musician, but um, it's like, you know how Led Zeppelin had a whole lot of love where the, if you listen to it with headphones on or some of the Pink mm -hmm. Floyd songs, it would like kind of shoot through your brain from one ear to the other. It's really cool. Yeah. Effect. And you did that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we did a lot of like extreme panning and like, you know, like you, you listen to old Jimi Hendrix records. It sounds like the equivalent of him running cross stage back and forth with his guitar. Yeah. Like it's just going back and forth and running. And, and so, yeah, I wanted to do that. There, there were other things that in, in music of that era, that I felt like weren't they didn't they they're really endemic to that late sixties era that even what we call classic rock of people who are doing music in that fashion, they don't do even they don't do. And namely, one, changing tempos within songs, mm -hmm. two, having having breaks, you know, having it just like break and then you know, it's almost like Led Zeppelin, great idea. It's like when 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 they stop and he's like, way down inside. It's not like everything, it, which you hear post-1980s, 
most music is what what we call on a grid. It's it. They they use it. We use it. I do this too. You use a, a click track. You play everything to a click track so that you can go back and change anything you want. It'll be in the same rhythm. Um, and, and, and everything done on Pro Tools these days. So literally there's a grid that you can see where the sound waves are coming on and, to, and it's associated with the grid, which is in, in turn associated with rhythm and tempo. Um, so I wanted to get around that to really try to make it more organic to the way people did do the music back then in, in, in the 60s. And especially when you're looking at the great bands like Cream or uh, Rolling Stones or whatever, they didn't do it in piecework. They were pretty much doing everything live because they were that, A, they were that good musicians and they really had a good feel together for how they played. Probably a lot of songs were tested out on the road, so by the time they were actually doing them in the studio, there was a real feel, and they didn't need to have like a click track and something to play along to. So I'm really glad that you're my co-host for this episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares, because our guest today is Fran Strine, the director of Dolly, Live in London, Hired Gun, and most recently, Who You Gonna Call, the Ray Parker Jr. story, and I know we'll have a lot to talk about. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting in the nitty gritty of some of these incredible players that he's interviewed for his for his films and also knows. So, um, yeah, very looking forward to that. All right, well, let's get to it. Our guest today is Fran Strine, the director of Hired Gun, which is a fascinating documentary about the sidemen and session musicians of rock. I happened to just stumble upon it on Prime a couple of years ago, and I was telling everyone I knew to watch it. I mean, I learned so much. I always thought Ted Nugent sang Stranglehold, but no, the vocalist is a hired gun named Derek St. Holmes. Fran also got the most fascinating stories about Billy Joel's band, White Snake, Pink, Metallica, you name it. So we're going to talk about that. And also Fran's current documentary, which is about Ray Parker Jr., it's called, appropriately enough, Who You Gonna Call? It's really eye-opening, and it sheds light on the person behind the catchy 1984 Ghostbusters theme song. Hello, friend. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me on. Now, even though I've seen Hired Gun two or three times, I'm still fascinated by all the stories, and I'll probably watch it again. Um, some of them are not so happy, like Billy Joel's longtime drummer, Liberty DeVito talking about how he was unexpectedly fired after their long friendship and collaboration. So how did you get the interviewees to open up like that? Do you have a technique? Do you apply them with alcohol or what? <laughs> no, I wish it were that easy. No, listen, you know, I have an upper hand as I, I've been in the touring and studio session world for many years. I was a, a tour photographer, videographer for many artists. Uh, for maybe 15, 20 years before uh, having come up with the idea for Hired Gun. So I kind of know these guys' language, right? And, and when you know that, they kind of open up and maybe tell you stuff they shouldn't tell you, you know, which works to your advantage. But, you know, you never want to throw the artist under the bus or anything like that. Or, you know, if you know they said something they maybe shouldn't have, you know, you don't want to uh, 
give that dirt away just just for the sake of making a, a you know a spiking movie i guess so it's not really a secret it's just uh you know if you know if you do your research and you know a little about the world that they live in it just makes it that much e easier for you have you ever had um an interviewee call you up later and say oh man please don't show you know this clip of what i said or any regrets from interviewees who asked you to maybe not mm. Not sure. yeah. No, not at all. You know, the one instance I did have, and this was after the movie came out, Hired Gun, was with Richard Patrick from Filter. Uh, he didn't like the way he was portrayed in the movie, but those were his words. And I didn't coax any of that out of him. He didn't like the way he was treated in Nine Inch Nails. So he found his way out and became very successful as a hired gun. And in turn, he used Trent Reznor's methods in his own band and his own band didn't like those and they all kind of you know the ones that decided to leave left so we had a little uh you know email chat back and forth about you know I wish you'd release the whole thing and let people see the whole interview well if I were able to do that you would see that it was verbatim exactly what he said nothing was twisted out of context or anything like that and those were his words and you know it's a documentary you know um he, he was telling me his side of the story of how he treats his musicians. And I told him, I was like, look, Richard, I, I think that it's a, it's a good thing what you do. You tell them up front that, you know, this is what you're going to make. You're not going to sleep in a hotel half the time, you know, so I'm just telling you up front. And I thought that was admirable of him instead of, you know, lying to them and telling them some false information and have them coming on the road and, not, and you know, uh, expecting something totally different. So. Um, and also, if you did all the interviews uncut, your documentary would be 19 hours long. You know, there's how it would be, yeah. it would be a, it would be a daunting task for somebody to sit there and watch the whole thing for sure. You'd have to give it to Pat uh, to you know the get Peter Jackson or the get back documentary. What is that like three three days of footage or something like that? I mean, that's hard for probably hard for you to cut down. It's incredibly hard. Yeah, I mean, you're gutted all the time. Every day you're in that that editing chair with your editor and you're looking at this gold mine of stuff because all the stories are so fascinating. And it's like, what do you keep? What do you whittle down? It's, you know, that's the tough part of being a filmmaker, you know, is deciding what to uh, to cut out and leave into the movie. And it still is to this day. Well, I, uh, you said you were a videographer and you have this background. I'm, I'm, are you also a musician? Is that why you were attracted to these you know, these uh, hired guns? You know, I can play guitar. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a failed musician. I, you know, <laughs> if a kid wants to be a, a musician growing up that loves music and uh, it didn't quite work out for me. And I just kind of stumbled upon uh, photography as a hobby and it led into a career, you know, so that's pretty much how it happened. But uh, I still noodle around with the guitar now and then, but I'm, I mean, you know, I'm certainly not one of these guys. Wow. Well, I, the, the level of talent of the people that you interviewed, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, was there anybody that you, I don't know, that, that really stick out in your mind? I mean, obviously everybody interviewed, but people who said something that was completely unexpected? Mm, you know, there's one guy that, uh, that I love his honesty. His name is Chris Johnson. He's uh, currently the Lady, Lady Gaga's drummer. And he's in hired gun for a few seconds, but, uh, you know, he keeps it real. He doesn't care about the artist so much as the paycheck, 
you know, he's like, I need to feed my family. I don't care if you're Lady Gaga or you're the guy playing in a, you know, coffee shop. Are you going to pay me more than Lady Gaga? And <laughs> me as long, I'll come play with you. You know, <laughs> that shocked that, me. You know, that's effort, honesty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, and he's a fantastic drummer, just a great person. So, you know, he always gets these big A list gigs, and I'm sure he's making plenty of money and not having to worry about playing in a coffee shop. But if so, he would, he would go do that. But, uh, Fantastic. If I were if I were really rich, I'd like to in the middle of somebody's gig offer him more money just to quit and come on. <laughs> yeah, for real. He'd probably do it too, man. He's, he's serious about it. He's got children and another one. So yeah, it's uh it was pretty funny to hear the honesty. Um, well, I you have another film that's upcoming, and I was lucky enough to catch um, what I believe was the first sneak peek screening of Who You Gonna Call, the Ray Parker Jr. story at the Arclight. Yes, you and Ray were there, and so needless to say, the response was fantastic, and I can't wait till you um, get to show the whole world the film. But um, I, I honestly didn't know much about Ray going in. I basically knew that he wrote and sang that kind of goofy earworm of the song for the Ghostbusters movie but um, you know he is truly a, an accomplished musician who worked with the likes of Stevie Wonder, Shaka Khan, Boz Skaggs, Keenan Turner to name only a few um, and he's somebody who overcame great odds before achieving success so I'm curious to know how you and Ray first met and what it was about his story that made you want to be the one to direct the film. <coughs> well you know I met Ray on the set of Hired Gun I was oh, okay. uh, yeah, I interviewed David Foster, a uh, super famous producer. And we we're going down a list of people that I'd interviewed for this for Hired Gun, you know, you know, and he was like, have you interviewed Ray Parker Jr.? I'm like, the Ghostbuster guy? And you could tell he got kind of flustered. He goes, no, 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 no. That movie does not, or that song does not define his guitar playing skills. You should definitely interview him. So... He gave me his contact info. I, I rang him up and he agreed to the interview. And Ray had just flown in from Japan the night before I interviewed him. So he was kind of tired and kind of, you know, I want to say half-assed the interview, but he wasn't uh, wide awake. And I'm sure there was a lot of stuff he forgot. You know, he's done so much. It wasn't until we started doing the press screenings and festival screenings for Hired Gun until I got to know more about Ray. Because I asked him if he'd like to come to some of these screenings to be my guest for the Q&A. And he loves traveling. He's like, sure, I'd love, I'd love to come hang out. So we went to Australia, believe it or not, for two weeks <clears throat> and screened it all over Australia. And that's a long flight, 16 hours from LA. And we're sitting next to each other. And we started talking. He's spilling all this information out that he failed to tell me during the hired gun interview. And I was just like, oh my gosh. You know, there, there's so much more uh, breadth of work that he's done besides just Ghostbuster in his own solo career so much so that I was tempted to tell the pilot to just turn the plane around and take us back to LA because I knew exactly what my next movie was going to be <laughs> so when we got back you know I started really thinking about what my next move would be and I just couldn't stop thinking about making this movie with this guy that uh you know people do know Ghostbusters and maybe some of his other you know the other woman or you know a couple other songs but they just don't know the whole story of this guy and when I was telling people about this in the industry, they're like, are you crazy? You're coming off the success of Hired Gun. You're going to do a movie about the Ghostbuster guy. And I had the same reaction David Foster did because I knew all this information. I got a little flustered. I'm like, well, I'm making this movie for a reason. You know, documentaries are a learning tool, right? 
and you get to tell somebody's story or a subject story. So I was off to the races, you know, and it was a fascinating story, man. The guy has done so much work and it's funny because we did our U.S. premiere in Detroit uh, back in September and they invited us to the, uh, to Motown, the Motown Museum, you know, yeah, where, you know, all those great, you know, the Temptations, the Four Tops, Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. So we're standing in the floor of the snake pit right there where the Funk Brothers played and you know, Smokey Robinson and, you know, Barry Gordy producing all these great records. And the USA Today was there doing an interview with us. And the interviewer asked Ray, is like, you know, do you, have you ever done a session here? He goes, it was my, he goes, my matter of fact, my first session was here. The guy's like, really? He goes, yeah. Ray's like, I sat in that corner right there next to James Jamerson. And the guy's like, well, what was the session? He goes, you know, it's funny you say that because I didn't even know. I just got called in to do a session. I didn't know who it was for. I was 13 and a half years old. And come to find out it was with Smokey Robinson, you know, and the rest is history. You know, he yeah, wow. with Marvin Gaye back as a teenager and, you know, Holland Dozier Holland, which a lot of people probably don't know, but they were the great songwriters and producers of all those Motown hits with the Supremes and the Four Tops and just a fascinating story. You know, and, and Ray had a, a tough time getting out of, uh, out of Detroit, you know, due to the racial climate there with the riots of 67 and he got caught up in it and got beat up by the cops. And that's what made him stay in his house. He was too scared to go out and play. You know, he wanted to just sit in there, play the guitar and find his way out of uh, Detroit. And he did it. Yeah, that's a, an interesting aspect to the documentary as well, because when I was watching it, you know, I didn't expect it to get that dark and how it's it really does kind of mirror what's going on today it's kind of sad how things really haven't changed as much as they should have in so many years right yeah i thought that was important to tell in the in the movie so we definitely went there and you're right it's, it's dark and it's scary and it's sad you know that's still happening uh, all these years later how did he start so early you said 13 years old yeah man you know he just uh woodshed everybody you got to remember detroit was a music haven for these for these uh black kids you know so they just really just played their instruments you know and and ray more so because he was too scared to go out and play you know wow he got really really good really quick you know a renaissance man right i mean did he act and do a bunch of different stuff right well he tried to produce written yeah he uh he's a man of many many hats for sure yeah but you know he's produced he's written you know uh for so many artists, you know, for Shaka Khan, uh, you know, Diana Ross, he's written for, um, you know, the new edition, you know, Mr. Telephone, man, that's Ray's song. You know, I see that you were working with Dolly Parton on a concert film. And I, I was just wondering if you could tell us something about that. Man, what can I say about Dolly Parton? She is just the queen, you know, she is just such a kind, fun, generous woman. And, uh, Oddly enough, I met Dolly Parton through her manager, uh, Danny Nozell. Believe it or not, he was the tour manager for a heavy metal band called Slipknot. Oh, I know Slipknot. Wow. (laughs) Slipknot and Dolly Parton. What a roster. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So I worked with Slipknot for many, many years. So Danny knew who I was. And Danny's just a great friend and and person. And Dolly was making a huge comeback, you know, and it like, we kind of run a revamp her a little bit. I know you're, you know, a rock guy. So maybe you can add some of that flair to her image. 
sure, what do you need? He goes, well, we're going to go to Lon London and do uh, two sold out shows at the O2 Arena. And we want to video it for a live concert DVD. Are you interested? Of course, I said, yes. So that was the beginning of a great relationship with her. And I've now shot two of her album covers. And I've done a ton of her, you know, promo photos for all these magazines from you know, Cosmo to, you know, Women's Day to Country Living. And even I even went to Costco one day and they give you the little pamphlet. And there she is with a photo of mine that I took of her in the Costco magazine. <laughs> she is just a wonderful person i love her to death and i can't wait to work with her again and i hope i do have the pleasure to do that again because she's just she, fantastic. yeah she's just one of my favorites as well everyone loves dolly yeah and yeah i've never yeah. i've never heard anybody say anything remotely negative about dolly parton not ne never yeah never you can't i mean she's just that person you know she's just a great same thing with ray parker jr that's funny you say that because and, you know, Ray's been so squeaky clean. I was like, there's got to be some dirt on this guy. And I asked every single <laughs> like, you know, tell me something naughty about Ray. It's like, there is no, he's like, he's a best friend's friend is what they say. He's like, there's just, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about him. And likewise, we're wonderful friends now. And, um, you know, I see him all the time, you know, I spend half my time in Calabasas where I live and, uh, Part, you know kind of part-time because I have a girlfriend here and then the other time in Santa Monica and he lives right down the street so we we hang out quite often hmm. I think you Ray and Dolly should all start a band <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> with, with clown from Slipknot exactly. yeah 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 it, it can work yeah yeah Darren actually worked with clown from Slipknot on his film uh Repo the Genetic Opera oh okay yeah, that's right Nice. he's an artistic freak man that's for sure he's been <laughs> that guy many years he's uh he's that guy wow <laughs> uh well i want to switch gears from dream projects to your own personal rock and roll nightmare since that is the title of our podcast do you have one i've got plenty of which, which one <laughs> just pick one out of the air yeah you know as a as a touring videographer uh, you know what? I'll tell you one of the, here's one that just bummed me out the most. So we wanted to do a, a remake of the Ghostbusters music video, like a 2021 version of it. And this was before they knew that they were going to make Ghostbusters Afterlife. They gave us their blessing. You know, I had to go to Sony to get permission to use like the, you know, the Ecto-1. As a matter of fact, we used the original Ecto-1 that you see in the 1984 version or 82 or whatever. It oh, was. wow. And ironically enough, the Slimer, you know, it's actually a machine. This guy wears this thing and it's all robotic. The mouth opens, the eyes move, the tongue comes out, the hands wiggle. Yeah, so we're able to get all that stuff. And even a pro the proton pack, we had somebody at Marvel do the uh, effects on it to make the lasers shoot out and stuff. So we do the music video. And of course, Sony has to sign off on everything. So we send it to them and they're like, we have a big problem here. I'm like, what is that? We've greenlit and... Ghostbusters Afterlife and none of your characters or anything have anything to do with the movie. And we're afraid that it's going to uh, confuse the audience, you know, and we can't have that. You know, they were super kind about it and they were heartbroken because they know how much work went into it. So nobody except for close friends and family will ever get to see that music video. And it breaks my heart because it's so good. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh man, that is a nightmare. Yeah, we had 130 something extras and dancers and the whole thing. And uh, it was just devastating. So we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for yeah, thank um, you. being on the show. And Fran, can you let um, music fans know where they can find and follow you online? Yeah, any anywhere is just at Fran Strime. Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah, so it's pretty pretty simple. And then, uh, you know, if you want to follow my my what I've got coming up, it's uh, my new production company is called F Twenty Six Productions. Dot com. Yep. Dot com. All right. Well, thank you, Fran. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for having me on. And this was fun. Let's do it again sometime. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Thank you. As always, before I close the show, I'm going to share a paragraph from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is an excerpt from the nonfiction edition, and the chapter is Tragedy. Francis Bean was born to Kurt Cobain and Courtney Love on August 18, 1992, in Los Angeles, California. Her parents named her after Francis McKee, guitarist for the Scottish indie pop duo The Vaselines, and former REM frontman Michael Stipe and actress Drew Barrymore are her godparents. The strikingly blue-eyed model and professional artist was in the spotlight right from the start. Her sonogram image was featured on the sleeve of Nirvana's 1992 single Lithium, and as a baby, she was a paparazzi prize as the press followed her famously fucked up mom and dad throughout their various drug flameouts. 20-month-old Francis saw her dad in rehab one week before he took his life and was subsequently raised by her mother, aunts, plus a nanny and placed in her paternal grandmother's care for a time after Love's Los Angeles drug arrest in October 2003. Hours after leaving police custody, she overdosed on painkillers in a hotel room but was saved thanks to her daughter's presence of mind. Love, who was working on her album, America's Sweetheart, at the time, worked on herself and finally regained custody of her daughter two years later. But, as addicts often do, she relapsed and lost custody again and again over the years. Includes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B O O K S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time.